Welcome back to Recorded Conversations, the podcast that's dedicated to compassionately considering all perspectives while engaging in authentic, connected dialogue. I'm Danielle Kingstrom. is so warm and the wind is blowing so fiercely but it is spring in minnesota y'all and i was outside today for so long i did yoga in the yard i fed my chickens i went and watered my cows and my favorite little one dinner he licked me to say hello and maybe apologize for scraping me with his horns because i didn't fill that water up fast enough for him and I played outside in the wind with my daughter and we pretended that we could fall back in the wind because it was blowing so strong and it was just a beautiful afternoon and I hope that y'all can take a moment aside from the craziness and all of the things that we're supposed to be outraged about and all of the things and the devices that demand our attention. I hope you can take a pause and go find you just a little morsel of a moment outside in the sunshine, in the wind smelling the dirt and everything starting to come to life again. I hope you can bask in a moment like that. That is what pausing for the presence is all about, is about just being in the moment, connected to everything around you and feeling it and smelling it and tasting it and touching it and listening to it. It's glorious and it kind of pings on the upcoming discussion that you will hear with my next guest, Tim Higgins, who originates out of Ireland and actually didn't know any of this. I, I knew so little about him but had been connected to him on social media for such a long time. And it was because we were arguing over a Kaepernick meme that... Uh, I said, you know what, I want to have a conversation about this and just about God and life with you because I was so disarmed when I paused for a moment to go check out who he was and what he was about before I further invested any more negative energy into just disagreeing with him because I was falling into that trap. And so he shared one of his YouTube videos with me and I watched it. I was immediately disarmed by that wonderful Irish accent and I mean I'm a Minnesotan girl I know I have an accent but there is something about those Irish those Scottish and those English accents that just make a girl want to stand and listen but Tim is more than an accent he is a writer and he is I think kind of a modern day mystic he's going through his own religious deconstruction he is coming to terms with a new faith and he's written a book 
called The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached. It's available on Amazon right now. I highly recommend it. For those of you who follow along the progressive deconstructionist circles, you might be familiar with another deconstructionist writer named Keith Giles who wrote the foreword to Tim Higgins' book. So just as a little bit of additional credence, it's a great book. I, I went through it after I completed the interview with him. And if you follow me on social media, you notice that I posted some of the notes from his book to just kind of be a light and encouragement of his words and to show a wider audience, kind of help him out. He is individually published. And I know there are great publisher houses out there. I know that they do a lot for people. But a lot of writers don't have that opportunity or privilege to work with a publisher. And so I just want to give another hat tip and show a little bit more additional appreciation for those of you who self-publish. I can't imagine what that's like. I am working on a book myself and contemplating, do I seek out a publisher and or do I do it myself? And so just a hat tip to that. Um, this conversation kind of unfolds the Sermon on the Mount. Many people are familiar with uh, Matthew 5 to 7. And his book, The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached, kind of is a tantamount to Jesus's teachings. And Tim is also a linguist. So he has a little bit of additional layer of understanding of translation and the language that he shares with us throughout the conversation. So if you are ready to hear another open-minded, maybe universal light perspective about the nature of God, about a better theology, if you're going through some kind of deconstruction, transformation, unlearning process, this is another great conversation to listen in on. Listeners, as always, I ask you to compassionately consider the perspective of Tim Higgins. I want to tell you, um, yeah, when we started kind of like going at it last week when we were arguing over that Kaepernick meme, mm. I didn't realize what you sounded like. And as soon as you shared your video, I, no joke, I was immediately disarmed. There was this calming nature about your voice where I was like, I want to listen to him. Maybe I should stop pushing so hard. So that was just kind of a great way to break up um, what was going on and what probably goes on with a lot of people in Facebook is mm -hmm. that we don't really attach a person or a tone behind the messaging. We kind of project it outward. And it was yeah. like, as soon yeah. as I saw how you speak and how you, how you see the nature of God in the world, I was like, okay, I might've gotten ahead of myself. Um, so I just really appreciated that. And so what I came to discover, and again, just so many friends not paying attention was that you wrote a book. And I'm like, I didn't know we wrote a book and mm -hmm. it's called the greatest sermon ever preached. And I heard you say yeah. Keith Giles wrote the foreword. 
Yes, you did the photo for me. Yes. Okay, so would you mind telling us just a little bit about that book? I have it in my cart. I'm going to order it. I want to read it. But I'm wondering if you can give the audience just kind of a little precursor of what to expect out of that book. It's basically my exposition of the Sermon on the Mind. Um, I started off a lot of years ago writing about contentment, trying to find contentment, and trying to define what we think of as sin. What is sin, and how, how do we, how do we as Jesus followers, live with the idea of sin? And I focused a lot on Matthew chapter five, which is the first part of the Sermon on the Mind. And that book wasn't really going anywhere. It was too, getting too big, too wieldy. I then decided to focus on certain parts of it, and I took that bit and I thought I'll expand on the whole sermon. So I just looked at the Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus was saying. I'm trying to pick apart Jesus' message. And that's really what I've been about all along. I want to take away 2,000 years of church history and human interference and get back to what Jesus said and just look at it and take it from a fresh point of view where it's not really, oh, Calvin says this or Piper says that or Keith Jai says this, whoever it is. We just look at the the message itself, and analyze what Jesus was saying. I tried my best to do that. So it's my point of view of if I'd been there and heard his sermon, how would I have reacted? And Mm. I hope the book does that. The only thing I didn't do was get an editor. And I don't think that's helped me because I've had very few reviews of the book and very little comeback from people. So I didn't sell very well. I only sold a few copies. But I'm thinking now I should have got an editor that would have helped to make it, maybe would have made it better. So that was the one thing I I think I did wrong in that. Yeah, you self-published, right? Yeah, I I tried to to publishers, the ideas, and none of them are biting. I then thought, I need to get a social media following, modern world. If you have a social media following, they're more likely to take you on board. So I started the YouTube channel, and I've been there for two years now on YouTube. I have a grand total of 65 subscribers. Way more than I have. <laughs> <laughs> Still, in YouTube terms, it's nothing. You know, it's, it's yeah. really minute. So I just said it's self-published that. And I'm going to self-publish my other books. I have a lot of respect for people that self-publish, actually. Um, it's a lot of work. And you're, you're entering into a world you, 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 that is unknown to you. Um, yeah. And so I really have an appreciation for that. I actually noticed, like a week ago there was this big debacle between um, publisher houses and self-published independent writers. And they were arguing about what it means when you self-publish and why publishers only pick certain people and not everybody should publish. And I just thought, I think what might be happening is that publishers might be getting scared because we're an independent nation and we're learning how Mm -hmm. to do things for ourselves with the advancements of technology. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a way to kind of shut people down from Um, publishing independently so I'm like keep doing it people because I think that's kind of how you how you tear the system down and start over right because we can get trapped in all of these different systems and they can be this authority over us and tell us how things go but it seems more and more people are coming out from the fringes and are going no I can do it too and so anyway I just have a big appreciation for that it's a lot of work but maybe we can't help get people to go check your book out, leave you reviews. I know how important those are, um, especially on Amazon. They can help kind of pump you out into that algorithm so you can get more attention. Your book kind of, from what I gathered, and just from looking at a lot of your videos, had kind of a Leo Tolstoy feeling to him. I don't know if he's influenced you at all. 
Um, um, Well, I I got into Tolstoy a few years ago, and I just really liked his whole contemplative view of the Gospels. But so it kind of had that kind of reminiscence to me. Mm. You talked about the red pill of Jesus and the kingdom. And I really liked that video that you did. So I'm just wondering if we can just tap into that a little bit and share. You you use references to the Matrix. And if you could just kind of expound on that. Well, that was just me looking at... um, the idea of what the red pill is in the matrix that you enter into another world. And it just struck me, this is what Jesus talked about his kingdom. In my kingdom, the first will be last, the last will be first. He turns things on its head. He tells people, this kingdom that you, you strive for here in Israel against Rome. No, my kingdom is different. My kingdom is not of this world. And all that Jesus taught us about his kingdom was that the rules and regulations we think apply to what God wants for us really are we've got it wrong. And Jesus, I can sense his frustration with his disciples sometimes where he's doing the face palm and he's going, no, you don't get it. You still don't get it. How long have you been with me? And you still don't get it. My kingdom is different. And you have um, the mother of James and John comes along and says, whenever you sleep your kingdom, Lord, will you have my two sons at your right and left hand in your throne? And you can sense Jesus going, oh my goodness, this is just not what I'm about. She yeah. wants this great kingdom. He's on a throne and my sons will be at his side. You know, warrior kings. And he's trying to tell us, no, this is not the way it is. And the red pill idea was that if you take the red pill and you enter into the kingdom of God, your eyes are open to a whole new way of thinking, a whole new way of living. And that's what Jesus is trying to tell us. Come with me into this kingdom and see a different way of life. A different way of thinking. You don't need to live like others. You don't need to be striving for things and for for power and for wealth. In my kingdom, these things don't matter. But you matter. And you get a a total sense of entering into a matrix of of love. That is, it's what Jesus is about. And we've missed so much of that. And we have politicised the gospel so much. And we have made it into something which is I mean, 2,000 years of church history has just been churches trying to fight each other for power. Different denominations, different theologies, different schools. And in the end, we need to get back to what Jesus said. That's what the red pill to me is about. Take the red pill and leave this world behind and discover the truth, the reality behind that. Mm. Yeah, and it's it's hard to get people on board with that because like as Morpheus says, it's not something that you can be told about. You have to see it. And it's like you yes. have to see the world with fresh eyes. I you know, and I think that's why Paul's eyes are covered and he's blinded is because he he needs to be able to greet the world with fresh eyes and a lot of us are like, "Oh, I did. I meditated." I see the world with fresh eyes and then they're still going back to their old habits. And I think people mm. want this to be I especially notice this when people are like, I came to Jesus or I, or I converted or I became a born again Christian. They think it's something that happens just overnight because you say a pledge and you read some Bible verses Mm -hmm. and it's like, you have to completely shatter every illusion that you have created for yourself that Mm -hmm. tells you this is what the world is and you have to see it in a different way. I liked what you had talked about um, in one of your videos, you were talking about Isaiah 55 and my ways. And for mm-hmm. me, what that spoke to was with what I'm doing with what I've been writing about is I'm like, okay, but the form of love I understand that God is, is giving to us is a love that would even be given to Hitler is a love that would 
be given what's everybody go to towards a pedophile or someone who molests. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really high type of love that most yes. humans are like, no way you don't, you can't love Hitler after all he did. That's horrible. And, yeah. and Trump, you can't love Trump. He's, he's a horrible person, but I think somehow we must get to that higher love because otherwise mm -hmm. we're just going to be pointing our fingers at everybody saying, that's not love. That's not love. That's not love. That's not love. And we're really good at saying what love isn't, but we're not seeing that it's actually much bigger than you know, what our, what our meager little words can articulate. And yeah. you as a linguist probably have a great appreciation for that and that you can go back and you can see what these words represent and you can, you have that understanding of how the meanings have changed over the, the years, right? Like we apply different meanings to words. Yeah. So I'm wondering if we can step into that, the Isaiah 55. I just really loved what you talked about that. And mm -hmm. we can throw in some of your linguist expertise to kind of help us better understand that that passage if i can recall it well enough yes <laughs> let them turn to the lord and he will have mercy on them and to mm -hmm. our god for he will freely pardon for my thoughts are not your thoughts neither are your ways my ways declares the lord as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts come to me and i will forgive you yes let them come and i will forgive them and this I will is what he means by being above us. We don't forgive, but he will. So anyone who comes to him will be forgiven. He's openly forgiving people, and that's what it means. My ways are not your ways. His love and his forgiveness is so high above what we would ever do. That's what he's saying. It's not a catch-all for when you're going through suffering, well, God has a reason for it. And I think what I said in another vlog, I had just my, my testimony when I was down in a log cabin. And I was talking, I said, someone's child was killed by a drunk driver. And some minister comes and says, well, God has a reason for it. There's a reason for everything. There's a reason the child was killed. Someone got drunk and got behind the wheel of a car. Don't blame God for that. And this thing about my ways are not your ways, it's used to try and excuse suffering and excuse what we go through. Well, God is sovereign and these things happen and they happen for a reason. No, God can take from that suffering and he can, he can produce beautiful things for us from that suffering. But the idea that God has was behind it, that God allowed your child to be killed by a drunk driver. No. I just blame the driver for getting drunk behind the wheel. It did wrong. Don't try to say that's God's will and it's God's sovereign. That's where the sovereignty of God for me has, I've left it behind. God is sovereign in my life because I choose to let him in. But I don't believe he's sovereign in everything. He lets us have free will. He lets us get on with things. He told Adam and Eve, do not eat of this fruit of the tree. A little bit of fence around it. He left it to their free will to decide. And that's what God does. He gives us free will and he allows us to make decisions. If we make wrong decisions, so be it. And God, I believe, does intervene. I do believe in the power of prayer. But the idea that every single thing that happens is a sovereign will, then that means he's responsible for the Holocaust. Yeah. And there was a thing I read recently that they found some graffiti beside a bed in one of the camps in Germany. And it was someone saying, it's okay, I have forgiven God. Mm. Christians react to that and think, that's a terrible thing to write. But if you think of this person in that place, seeing all the suffering and the death, knowing they're going to their death, and they probably cried to God themselves, and no answer comes. And they wrote on the wall, it's okay, I have forgiven God. You have to take on their point of view, their perspective, that what they went through, they were angry with God for not mm. coming to the rescue. 
And that's a yeah. very difficult subject and a very difficult topic to get into. But I understand that person, I understand that they're angry with God because they've seen that suffering. And my ways, not your ways, is nothing about God's sovereignty. It's about understanding that God is higher than us in his love and his forgiveness that we can't comprehend. And he will love and forgive Hitler and the pedophile and Trump or Biden and Boris Johnson, whoever it is that is our enemy. <laughs> whoever is our enemy, God will love them and will forgive them. I'm quoting the universalism, which is, I'm not a universalist, yet, I say yet, because I have friends who are universalists and they sort of, they draw me along. Um, yeah. One of the quotes I ever come across, and it really changed things for me, with Benjamin Corey, and he said, um, I don't believe in Christian universal salvation, but I actively hope and pray that it's true. And I do, I would love that to be true. And in the end, everyone comes to Christ. Yeah. The problem with that, I find then, is that in the same way the Calvinist says everything's predetermined and God has his elect and his non-elect and it's nothing to do with us. Universalism also says that everyone will come to Christ and that implies it's not our choice. Mm, that's a good so point. So it's the same thing. It's saying that everyone will come to Christ in the end. Therefore, we have no sin, no matter we have no choice. And that, to me, is just, falls into the same trap as Calvinism. Mm. As it says that we are predetermined to this fate. Um, that's that's interesting. what I can't get into. I never really thought about that. I just kind of, I've, I've always convinced myself that that's a good idea because I think if I can think that's a good idea, there's no way that I'm more loving than God. Like where I could say, mm -hmm. I can understand that. And other people are like, what do you mean? Then what happens to people that do bad things? Well, they're forgiven. But I never really thought about it beyond that. It was just like, well, I can't sit here and think that that would be a great idea and somehow that I have a, I have a more loving understanding of forgiveness than God. But the predetermination understanding, yeah, we don't want to think that God controls us. And, yeah. you know, I read, I read Thomas J. Ord's The Uncontrolling Love of God. And so for me, it's like, well, love is uncontrollable. And that it doesn't control you. It doesn't force you. It doesn't coerce you. It doesn't push you into something. And mm -hmm. God's love must always be uncontrollable. Because God's nature is love, God can't control whether or not he gives love to someone else. It just is always an outpouring. So there's yeah. that kind of paradox to consider when laid next to this other idea of predeterminism that, I don't know, people can wrestle with, I suppose. Mm -hmm. So... You and I got kind of into a little back and forth on the social yeah. media Facebook. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to go back to that a little bit, if you, if you can recall. And it was yeah. this Kaepernick meme that I think uh, you said John Pavlitz had shared. And I, I don't like John Pavlitz at all. Um, and so that immediately kind of set me back because I was like, uh. um, yeah. I've been blocked by him. I've interacted with him. I don't, I don't find him to be a kind person. So I just kind of, whatever, not judging mm -hmm. him. But it was an interesting, um, you kind of laid out some points that at first I was pushing back against. And then I went, oh, okay. A, I might have misinterpreted something. B, I probably came back a little reactive just because the John Pavlitz thing. But mm -hmm. you just kind of, you pointed out, I think that the, the, the point of the meme was kind of like what a lot of people are saying is that the people that stormed the Capitol and these ideas about the way that these protests went, we need to be doing something about it. We need to be calling it out. And they do need to, you know, have to pay for what they did. 
you know, in some form of punishment or responsibility. Am I, am I reiterating that? Yeah. Um, and so what is your view on this? And so I'm over here. I have a friend that was literally there in DC. Mm-hmm. Right. And so when I see anybody saying like these mega people or the people at the Trump, I'm like, okay, my friend Scott was there. Like he was there. I was on the phone with him, checking in on him. Right. And, mm-hmm. and I'm like, he's not that horrible of a person. I mean, yeah. don't get me wrong. People have issues. Friends get into little, uh, you know, kerfuffles. But for me, I can't do that. Right. And I think a lot of people are having that struggle where I don't want to put my friend in that same group. I'm not saying you're putting my friend in that same group, but that's how it's been happening. So I think that's why I was so combative about it. But I want you, if you wouldn't mind, to just kind of explain what you mean by that and and what your idea is to kind of move forward at how we interact with people like this who have these mentalities about what needs to be done for our nation now that Trump's out of office and everything. And if we can just go from there. Well, I can listen to what you're saying because on this side of the pond, we do have Trump supporters who see Trump as a breakthrough politically and a new way forward for the world. They want to see the world going this way. And that's largely to do with right-wing politics. And my politics are left-wing. And friends of mine have understood for a long time that we disagree on politics. We can have arguments and discussions all we want. We just disagree. Um, what I feel is different now is that it's becoming cultic. It's not just political beliefs. It's, I mean, I have good friends, really, some really lovely friends that I have had great times with. I think of them as lovely people, some of them very smart people, but they send me videos and they send me links to things like conspiracy theories, and I can debunk it in minutes. It's just rubbish. And I try to say to them, what, why, I mean, a friend sent me stuff from Alex Jones, and I replied to him and says, you're smarter than him. You're smarter than Alex Jones. Why are you sending me this? This man is an idiot. <laughs> or he's manipulating you. He's either very cleverly manipulating you or he's very, very stupid. There's no other explanation for it. So I have close friends that I say are not violent, rabid magas who want to destroy the world. They're being drawn along by their beliefs and their principles that are being appealed to. And they're being drawn into it. It doesn't mean they're not intelligent. It just means that if you want to believe in something, you can be drawn in. And if you know... Do you know Darren Brown? Yeah, he's a, Darren Brown is an amazing magician, conjurer, hypnotist, a phenomenal man, the things he's he achieved. I've seen him live. And in a live setting, he actually did a healing service where he can visit people that they were being healed. He did it just like evangelicals do. Come to the front and tell me how you've been healed. And people are coming forward and saying, my pain has gone. I, I, you know, and he said this is... I'm doing this not with any relation to God. I'm just showing that it's a manipulative mind trick that I can do to make you feel better. And Darren Brown has pointed out that people think that people who are hypnotized or drawn into cults are a bit stupid. He said, that's not the case. It's all about, do you want to play along? And if what that cult or that belief appeals to, you know, what it has appeals to what you believe in, you'll want to be drawn in. It's nothing to do with intelligence. It's nothing to do with being a nice person. It's how that thing actually grabs hold of you and draws you in because it knows what you want to hear. And this is what marketing does. It knows what you want to hear to sell a product. This is being used in politics now. We know what you want to hear, therefore we say it to get your vote. And they're using marketing techniques which are psychological, 
and which appeal to us on very, very deep base levels. And my friends that are falling into this trap, I feel I need to say something to them and tell them I'm concerned about them. And I don't want to change their politics. I don't want to change them from, you know, to be left-wing like, like me. I simply want them to be rational and look at what they're being told and work it for themselves, what's true and what's not true. Mm. We must all come to where it is the truth. And I can be brainwashed just as much as them. I can be drawn into something that appeals to me. And if you're aware of that, it's called confirmation bias. We all have it. If you're aware of your own confirmation bias, you can then be more able, be better equipped to say, hold on, this might look good, but is it really true? Is it really what I want to involve myself with? And that's not easy. No, it's not. So, and, sorry, go ahead. No, I, I wouldn't accuse your friend of being... Yeah. No, no, no. I would accuse him of not holding on to a bit of healthy skepticism. And I do come across people like this, the people that want to tell you about all the QAnon conspiracies, the people that want to tell you about all these undercut. And I think I, I might've shared a video or mentioned a video that I had seen where there's this video circulating where they're saying that this woman that was killed in the Capitol, that the whole thing was staged. And I mean, I've watched several of the videos. My friends were Mm -hmm. sending them to me and I'm watching them and they look legitimate, but then you also have to remember that we're in this day and age that you can manipulate anything, right? Yeah. I can pretend I'm talking to Barack Obama right now if I just did a few little fun filters, right? I could superimpose mm-hmm. his face over the years. I could adjust the, the, the sound and it could look like I'm having an interview with Barack Obama. So yeah. I know that I have to hold out for a little bit of skepticism. And like you said, it is easy to debunk a lot of things. You can just go do Google searches you can go to different even YouTube channels and you can put the parts together to see why someone would interpret it this way, right? And so I'll go back to flat earth. I remember uh, four or five years ago, I had a bunch of people that I was connected with on social media that were into flat earth. And I'm like, what Mm -hmm. the actual fuck is this? Mm -hmm. So I go sit down one night and I, I think I watched like eight, I watched videos all night on YouTube. Right. And they keep telling you, here's another one to watch. Here's another one to watch. Just like this part of the algorithm. And you can, they, you can watch these people who are in a professional setting that, you know, are scientists that are telling you why they're not telling you that the moon has its own sunlight and da, 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 da. And I think, yeah, there's so much information here that they provide that, if you want something to believe in, you can be easily convinced. So I watch all these videos. I go the next day to my family, my, my husband and my kids, right? And I'm like, so watch all these videos. And I'm fucking with them, right? I don't believe it, but I'm fucking with them. Yeah. And I'm like, look at how they're showing you. The earth is flat. And they're all going, what are you smoking? Like, what is wrong with you? And so I let this go for a couple of days, right? And I'm having these conversations with friends like, oh, yeah, watch that video. What else do you got, right? And I go through all these videos and I'm just like, no, no, this is ridiculous. But I can see how easy you can get sucked in, right? Mm -hmm. And so I've gone down the QAnon thing for curiosity. What are these people looking at, right? Yeah, sure. there's, There's lots of government agency secret things that were taking place that they have since revealed to us, right? And obviously the government's going to utilize all the psychological information they can because war, right? War tactics. My husband was in the military. He's told me about this. But we have to stop and ask ask ourselves bigger questions like flat earth, for instance. So you're telling me the whole world's been lying to me since the 60s. 
everything's a lie, right? Mm -hmm. The whole world is in on this lie. You're Mm -hmm. telling me that's true. And only this small amount of people know this true information and everyone's just trying to suppress the information. Why? So you go to the QAnon thing too, and all of the different conspiracies, are they conspiracies? Are they actual behind the scenes secret plans going on? Or are you just making leaps because this information fits snugly right here? If you shove it in deep enough and you can make it seem rational. And so I do worry about that. And I think my biggest concern about all of this is that people don't realize it's just another fear frequency program, right? I see that with politics, with all the propaganda, especially during campaign seasons, vote for me or you'll lose all of your rights, you know, vote for me or you'll never have money again, vote for me or they're going to segregate black people again, whatever it is. And so they can grip you with fear. And when you're gripped by fear, you're not thinking rationally. And I have had these conversations with my friends too, right? I'm like, but this is fear frequency. This is just something that it's a narrative based on fear. And if they keep you scared, they're going to keep you interested and they're going to keep your attention. And the whole goal of the internet right now is to get our attention right here. Are you looking at your screen? Are you looking at your screen? Mm -hmm. And so we have to say, is this just something to keep me addicted and giving them attention and keep me scared? Or is this something that's actually benefiting me with all of that? Then how do we talk to people like this compassionately? Right? Because I often am like, sometimes you can get so emotionally wrapped up in this. You're just finally like, you're an idiot. You're so brainwashed. Why are you so dumb? And we want to avoid that conversation. So how are you finding that you're having conversations with people about this? What are you, are you finding anything that's working? That's maybe kind of like getting people to second guess. So far, no. At one point I just give up. I thought I'm giving up because there's no point talking. There's no point trying to be rational and reasoning. And not long after that, I thought, this isn't good enough. I can't just ignore this. I can't walk away from it. Part of me feels, trying to have an expression for it, you're beating your head against a wall. You're not going to get anywhere. Uh, there's more important things to know with. And in a sense, I don't get into long debates with these things because I have more important things to do. But those friends of mine who are being drawn into it, all I can do is just show them that I'm still here. I still love them. And we're still friends. I don't want to lose our friendship. And I want to know that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we may differ on certain things. And I am genuinely concerned for them. And I genuinely believe they need to pull back from where they are. But that means not going into heated debates, not going into long-winded arguments, but just showing the love of Christ. And we always hear that Jesus is the answer for everything. Well, if he is the answer for everything, then showing his love to others surely is the best way forward. And it's all, the, only, the only weapon I have I said that one time, our greatest weapon is neither our arguments nor our doctrine. It's our love. And that's the only weapon I have. Mm. And that's all I can do. So as far as the arguments go, I just, I've reached a point of, on an intellectual level, giving up. Yeah. It just isn't there on an intellectual level. There's no rationale or reason behind it. Like, I hear that. I hear that. I struggle. I, with every video and with every... I feel like I'm unfollowing a new person every day because there's something that shows up that I'm like, do I want to confront this or Mm -hmm. do I want to unfriend them? I know a lot of people that are like, if flat earth, you're blocked. You know, if you're talking about uh, uh, staged coups, you're blocked, right? There's so many people that are like, 
nope, I am creating safer boundaries. I don't want to deal with the bullshit and I'm going to block them. And I've gone that route, but it makes me feel like, okay, well now I am denying them the possibility of, you know, learning from me. Cause I think that's what we're supposed to try and do is learn from each other. And if somebody is demonstrating love, you want that to be seen by other people. And so for me, I'm not saying I do it all the time, but my motivation is backed by love. And, you know, the things that I post and the things that I share and the things that I podcast about, that's geared towards love. Mm -hmm. And I look at things with a lens of love. So it's like, I don't want to get into the habit of blocking people, but I understand why people do. They just are like, ah, not today, Satan. I'm not dealing with this. Right. But what, what about when we have people that do that and then they, they kind of come out of it. I'm noticing that people are having a hard time extending forgiveness to one another. Right. Yes. And this idea that, and I even saw something recently that kind of, I like jotted down cause I was just kind of taken aback by it. And it was something, it, something to do with Britney Spears and some documentary and I watched it and what they did is they focused on the way these other celebrities treated her and it was mainly men. And so I think it was like Justin Timberlake came out on Twitter after this documentary and I'm sorry to Janet Jackson. And I'm sorry to Britney Spears. And you see more and more people stepping up going back then when I was coming up, I wasn't good. I didn't treat you right. Mm-hmm. And I think, well, damn, that's a great step towards reconciliation. And then you see Twitter go, hell no, Justin Timberlake, it's too late for apologies. And I'm like, well, that is a very dangerous path that we want to, that we're going to walk on yeah. if it's too late for forgiveness, right? Because mm-hmm. I mean, if I'm hoping that God never says it's too late for forgiveness, shouldn't I be imitating that? And so you, you spoke about forgiveness on something and I, what happened was something registered in my head that I had never registered before. And it was, you were talking about forgiveness and you said something like, if they're hungry, give them something to eat. If they're thirsty, give them water. And it will be like heaping hot coals on their head. And I have Mm -hmm. never heard anyone explain it to me in a way that that made sense to me. But as soon as you explained it, I'm like, oh my God, kill them with kindness, right? That's what my mom brought me up with. If someone treats you bad, kill them with kindness. Just Mm -hmm. love them kill them with love. And so the way that you just kind of broke down that verse to me, registered for me, I was like, oh, man, my mom got that idea from the Bible or something. Who knows? But that is what I want to see us moving towards is just constantly forgiving people. But our word, our world doesn't want to do it. Even Trump, right? He could say mm-hmm. an apology for something. And so many people are like, too late. Or Biden, I'm sorry I did this thing. I'm sorry I sniffed everybody's hair. Too late, you know? And, and I think, well, do we want to be able to extend forgiveness? Do we want to be able to have an apology mean something or not? Yeah. I take your point there. People have been saying that um, a quote from Biden when he was younger, which were quite racist. And Biden can say, I was a young man then. I wasn't experienced. I'm much more older and wiser now. And Kamala Harris is my running mate because I have nothing against other races. I wish to apologize for things I said. Surely you can say he was young and naive and he was brought up in an environment that didn't allow him to have a wider point of view. But now he's taken on a wider point of view. He's saying, that was the old me. I, I've, I've grown since then. And as you say, if Trump was to say, I made some mistakes and I realize now as an older man that I'm wiser and I want to apologize for that. Now, surely we can say, okay, they've recognized a wrongdoing. They've recognized something they said or did that they shouldn't have done. 
and we're now at a new place. And as you say, if we're not willing to move to this new place, then we're not forgiving. And Jesus said, if you do not forgive your brother his sins, your father will not forgive you. And that's scary. Mm-hmm. He told his followers that if you don't forgive your brother their sins, you will not be forgiven. And that's a really, really scary thing to think about, that if you're refusing to forgive someone, so it's in our nature not to forgive. We want to hold grudges and want vengeance. And Jesus says, no, I don't want you to do that. I want you to put that away. And the man who came to him and said, my brother has asked me to forgive him again. I'm tired of this. How many times should I forgive him? Seven? Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. In other words, you can't count it. You're meant to forgive. And the whole thing about you to your mother says, I killed my kindness. Whenever you do that, you get two reactions. Now, we had a, a gay cake row over here in Northern Ireland. Um, you've had it in America too. Person went to the shop, asked for the cake to celebrate gay marriage. But the owners are Christian. And they said, oh, we can't make that. We get the exact same thing here. Baker called Asher's. Asher's a Christian family. And a known activist went in and wanted a cake made for his friend's marriage to say, celebrate gay marriage. And they took the order and said, okay, we'll do that. Later on, they looked at it and said, we can't do this. The person took the order didn't realise. And they then went back and said, we can't make this cake for you. He took them to court to say, I was in your shop and I asked for it. You said, you do it for me. And now you're saying, no, that's discrimination. And I made the argument. I said, if that Christian family had decided to follow what Jesus said, if your enemy wants your coat, give him your cloak as well. If your enemy wants you to walk a mile, walk two miles. If they had turned around and said, okay, we took this order. You want this cake. There you go. There's the cake you wanted. Now, I might did it again, but well, here's the cake for you now. And they gave him the cake. Maybe give him two cakes. He wants one cake, give him two. You get two reactions. The person will either say, that was very nice of them to do that. They went against their own principles and they gave me the cake. Thank you very much. That was really nice of you. And you've won them over. Or if all they're looking for is a fight, they will get angry and they will say, this is not what I wanted. I wanted them to turn me down. And they will show their anger by not accepting what you've done for them. So you get two reactions. You either get them won over by your love or they turn against you and say, you know, and I've had this in my life personally. I've had it with someone that I extended another branch to and they turned mad because I tried to extend the olive branch. And if you do these things, you either win them over or you expose them for what they are. People who just hate and want conflict. Yeah. If you don't give them the conflict, you don't feed them. Don't feed the troll, they say. You know? The person who wants conflict <laughs> is looking for that. Yeah. Don't feed them. You will always get the either, either or a reaction. You win them over or you expose them for who they are. Yeah. So yeah. love wins in the end. Love, love does wins. It wins and then love always brings to light that which was in the dark. And yes. you, you can see then that there are, you know, there's absolutely, I forgive over and over all the time. But then there's that decision of inviting them back in, right? And I think a lot of people mm-hmm. might even misinterpret that verse and think, well, that means that no matter what I go through with this person, as long as I'm forgiving them, I'm the one that's in the good graces of God. But then you have to go, okay, but are you making a choice to willingly put yourself in harm's way? And do you need to keep putting yourself in this situation in order to be a forgiving person? <laughs> or is there someone else yeah. you might end up wanting to yeah. forgive on later on if you 
have an option and a choice to put someone else in there. And I often see the church abusing this idea, yeah. especially yeah. when it, we're talking about domestic abuse, right? Mm-hmm. Is that yeah. no, you're, if you're a good wife, then you submit and then you just forgive, even if your husband's beating you and you're like, well, we're, we're going to need a little bit of a distinction here on yeah. what forgiveness actively means. I think I noticed that most heavily in evangelical culture out here. We see a lot of stories coming to the surface now. I think it, like with Ravi Zacharias and mm-hmm. a lot of church abuse in this idea that you're not supposed to speak up against you know, people that are taking advantage of you in the church. You're just supposed to forgive. And so then yeah. we get into that manipulation do you notice, and, and I don't know how different it is in Ireland, but do you I mean, do you have the same kind of pockets of, of evangelicalism that, that kind of voice those ideas about forgiveness and silencing domestic abuse? And what's that like over there? I have heard of a couple of cases where a woman has gone to church elders or pastors and said, my husband actually is, is beating me. Um, it's getting, he's getting violent. And they have words with him. They come back and say to the woman, We've had a strong words of them told him, and he's, he's very sorry for what's happened. So just try and be a good wife. And I've heard this more than one occasion, where they, what she then told is, she has to then try to be a good wife, and don't provoke him anymore. Um, instead of just dealing with it and saying, I mean, personally, I had a friend when I was much younger. She got married on the rebound, and she was this, this guy. We could see them having rows even before they are married. After they were married, she came to my house one day, and she said, I always thought that if a man lifted his hand on me, I would leave him. And I'm sitting there as a young man, thinking, hmm, oh dear, right. Didn't know what to say. Didn't know how to deal with it. Conversation a bit dry. I said, is it that bad? She said, yes. And the conversation read up, and she left the house. And later on, I then found out that she had left her husband, left the church, and gone off on her own. These were the days before social media and mobile phones. I couldn't contact her. And I've always told myself afterwards that if I came across that again, I will say to the woman, or the man if he's been abused to, pack your bags and get out of there. Now, this person needs long-term counselling and help to get restored. You cannot be in that toxic relationship until things are seen to. And I made a promise to myself, if I ever come across that again, I will tell a person, you need to get out now. If it's toxic, it's not good for you. And where we get this wrong is we think if we forgive someone, we take them back. No, if the person is still the problems and still toxic to us, we shouldn't take them back. Forgiveness isn't setting them free, it's setting you free to move on with your life. So if you forgive them, that doesn't mean that they're back in your life again. You're able, you should be able to say, I forgive them for what they've done, but until things change, or until that person changes, and I believe they can, they're not coming back into my life because I cannot deal with that person. And there's times you have to draw a line and say, a toxic person must be kept away. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean you don't forgive them. It just means you're being, you're using self-care, looking after yourself and saying, this isn't healthy for me. So forgiveness yeah. does not mean that the person is completely absolved of all they've done. They still have to reconcile that with themselves and move on and change. And I don't believe people could change. I wouldn't believe in the gospel. Yeah. We can all change. We all have our faults and we all have our sins. We all have our imperfections. And... To me, a Jesus follower is a person who strives to be a better person today than they were yesterday. Yeah. We're always moving on that path. So I don't judge people by saying, oh, they're a terrible person. I say they're in a bad place. They're going through a bad time. What they're suffering may be mental health. It may be things in their life that's made them that way. And I pray 
for the healing and I seek to help them through their healing. But if they're that toxic, they're not in my life. Yeah. I have to look after myself. I can attest to that. I was abusive towards my husband earlier in our relationship and I had to go, I went through anger management. I went through couples counseling with him and I did my own independent therapy and then moved on and worked with a life coach. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, there was, and it wasn't that it was always that way. It was, there was a moment in my life where I was dealing with so much internal trauma and so much that was surfacing from the past that I was taking it out on my husband, not, not all the time, but if I had too much to drink and I was in a reactive state, I mean, yeah. my husband was the first one for me to, and he finally was like, you have to stop hitting me. You have to stop. And a couple of times he had said that I was like, yeah, I know I was just drunk and da 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 da. And then I was kind of like, no, I really do. And I need help. I need help to stop. And it's hard for us to ask for help. And I mean, I know there are a lot of women. I know a lot of women who abuse their husbands. Because Mm -hmm. when I I started seeking help and I started looking for resources, I actually found out that it was more common than I thought. I know women are always talking about men abusing them, Mm -hmm. which is totally true. It happens. But we really don't talk about women are abusive too. And there was a time where my daughter had told me she hit her, her boyfriend or fiance. And I went, you can't do that. After all I've been through, you should know better than that. And then I heard one of my closest friends told me that his wife used to abuse him all the time. And I was like, holy cow, we women also need to come to terms with our own inner wrath and we need to work on on our own healing. But there Mm -hmm. is an opportunity for forgiveness and we do need to rid ourselves of that toxicity and it's a long process. It's not easy, right? So for me, I was like, I'm not going to drink until I figured out how to handle my alcohol. And I'm not going to drink until I've worked out, you know, my, my childhood traumas. And I came from a family that spanked me too. So, mm-hmm. I mean, and I spanked my elder kids in the beginning as a single mom. And so we have all of these kind of programs at play that tell us that, well, this kind of violence is okay, but you know, just right here, or this kind of violence is okay. And I had to come into opening a door and going, no violence is okay. I don't care what, what is going on with me. That was my personal mantra was like, violence is just never the answer. And anger for me is just, anger is something that is bringing something to an awareness for me but I definitely don't want to make decisions when I'm angry and I shouldn't be around too many people when I'm super angry. And it's just about giving us, you know, uh, time to really reflect and meditate. I sometimes think about Jesus going away for 40 days. And when I was going through, just kind of working through my therapy and my anger management and everything, I was like, I think I get why Jesus disappeared for 40 days. Sometimes we just need to get the hell away from people and listen to ourselves and have a conversation with God and reconnect with our true self within without all of the influences of all the systems and the programs. Mm -hmm. So we can learn how to forgive them (laughs) ourselves and go forward from that. I'm really interested in hearing about what you're working on next and what your plans are for, for Tim Higgins in the future. So your book came out, when did your book come out? Oh, I think it was last May. May last year, I think. May of 2020. I think so, yeah. Okay, and that is The Greatest Sermon Ever Preached. And then you have a YouTube channel. What's the name of that? The Alternative Ulster Man. What is the Ulster Man? What is that? Yeah, Ulster is the northern province of Ireland. That's where Northern Ireland is. So we call ourselves Ulster Man. 
And there was a song in the 70s, late 70s, by a local band called Stiff Little Fingers, punk band, and it was called An Alternative Ulster. So it's a play on those words. It's a local song that we all liked. It's a a punk song, really loud, rash, brilliant punk music. Alternative Ulster. So I call myself the Alternative Ulster Man. And I checked the domain names on YouTube and nobody else has a name even like that. So I thought, it's unique. I'll keep it. It's very unique. Yeah. Yeah, And there you just kind of share what you're reflecting on with what you're coming to see. I liked what you did. You went up on... You went up, uh, you were outside, it looked very cold, and you just kind of, that's when you did the um, the Red Pill of Jesus. And same place I did the first blog, the first blog about why look, politics went not in the church. Oh, that's actually what I wanted to talk to you about real quick, too, was how do you say that? <laughs> say what, how do you huh? love politics, but not the church? Like. Oh. I made a video which was homage to Jefferson Bethke. Jefferson Bethke did his viral video, which is why I love Jesus, but I hate the church or something like that. Yeah, it's yeah, that title. It was about I love Jesus, but I hate the church. I hate religion. Um, and I did this as homage to him. Why I love politics, but not in the church. And it's my poetry slam to camera about how I love politics and I would discuss them, but not in church. I can't mm-hmm. abide when people in church and pulpits start preaching politics. Mm, this yeah. is not what Jesus is about. And I want them to talk about Jesus and not about their political beliefs. I could do the same thing. I could get up in front of a church and talk about my political beliefs and say, hi, I am a left-wing socialist and I think Jeremy Corbyn would be a far better prime minister than the one we have now. That's not my place to do that. I have no right to tell other people in the church. My, my personal opinion has no bearing in church and politics mm-hmm. has no place in church. Yeah. And I went up to Knockham Monument to do that. On the day I went, my son did all the video for me on that day, but he's a professional videographer. Really good job he did. Yeah, he and did. The, the day we went up, I was looking to have a view across Belfast. I said, hi, you can see all of Belfast behind you. As we got there, the fog came down. I thought, you won't see a thing. But the fog creates an atmosphere, which was just nice for it. And it was this lovely, ethereal, sort of foggy glow around me, which made the video really good. Yeah. And that was a knock monument, which is a monument to the war dead. My very last line is, get lost, you mongers of wars. The red pill was the same place. I went back up to Nakam Monument. It's not far from here. And I was just looking at the stars. And it was the time when all five visible planets were in the sky at the same time. Yeah. So it was about four o'clock in the morning. It was freezing cold. And I took up my microphone and my camera. And I just pointed out the, the five planets in the sky. And froze to death while I spoke to the camera about the red pill. So those two vlogs were on the same place. It was like a revisit to where I was at the start. Um, so where I'm going now, my next book is The Fall of Ananias and Sapphira. I'm going right back to the church in the book of Acts and seeing what happened. Where did it go wrong? You know, Jesus gave his instruction to the church and says, I'll build my church in the gates of hell and not prevail against them. He meant us, the people. But what we think of as church is the edifice, the buildings, the dominations, the congregations. That's what we think of as church. What he meant was us, his followers, we are his church. And I think from the very start, we took over the church and it went wrong. We've had 2,000 years of us trying to be the church, that Jesus never wanted us to be this. He wanted us just to be his followers. Yeah. So this book is about that, the fall of Ananias and Sapphira and how we allow our own desires and our own seeking for wealth and power to actually 
usurp his gospel and make it something else. Mm. So that book is in process now. Mm. I can't wait for that. And are you independently publishing that too? I'm going to try to publish her again. I'm going to see if I can get a publisher. I'm definitely going yeah. to get an editor. I have a recommendation yeah. for an editor to get that done. Um, the problem with self-publishing is not so much getting it done and putting Amazon. It's the marketing. Yeah. If you want to do marketing properly, it's very, very expensive. It is. Um, I try to do my own marketing, but I'm just not a marketer. I've learned specific <laughs> techniques, and I've tried marketing my book, and I do it week after week after week, and I get no results. So I need someone who knows how to market and if you go to a good publisher, they will have their own marketing department who yeah. specialize in that, and they will publish it and market it for you. So I'd like to get a publisher for that reason, but if not, I would just self-publish anyway. Well, either way, we're going we're gonna to do what we can to promote it and let people know that they need to check out Tim Higgins and find your book, The Greatest Sermon Ever on Amazon. Did I say that right? Mm-hmm. The greatest sermon ever preached. Yeah. Um, and to check out your YouTube video. And if they want to connect with you, Tim Higgins on Facebook, does that work? Yeah. All right. Although there's a thousand Tim Higgins out there. <laughs> All right. Good. Good. Well, thank you so much for having a conversation with me, for sharing your views. And yeah, yeah, enjoy um, until mm-hmm. next time, you take yeah. care. Nice to know. Thanks. God bless. You too.